I'm going to ask you this morning if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 21 of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 21, we're continuing to look at some of the parables of Jesus. We're going to look at two different parables today because they go together. We're going to begin reading then in verse 23 of Matthew 21. We're going to read quite a bit, I'll warn you at the outset here. There's quite a bit of text uh, covering these two stories of Jesus, and it begins here with an interesting question. Uh, So, verse 23, Matthew 21, try to stay with me now as we read. Now, when he came to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. And they said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first son and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and he went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near... He sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, 
and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes, and because they took him for a prophet. Now, as we consider the passage this morning, we need to see these stories that Jesus is telling as a response to the chief priests and the elders' question back in verse 23. There they asked him, verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So everything that Jesus says after that question is meant to be a response so that the outline looks something like this. First, Jesus' authority is questioned. Second, he tells them the parable of the two sons. And third, he tells them the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Now, it would help us, I think, if we just all agreed from the beginning that when the chief priests and the elders asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? They are asking a perfectly reasonable question. There's nothing unreasonable. I mean, these are the, the main guys in Judaism at the time. These are the chief priests. These are the elders of Israel. The representatives of the various tribes assembling together. These were the authorities, and they have every right to ask the question about authority here, where do you get off saying these things? Can you imagine uh, for a second if you were a teacher in a class, some of you are teachers in classrooms. Can you imagine being a teacher in a classroom and you show up to your class and you open the door and there's someone there in front of the class, someone who you don't recognize and they're teaching the class and all the students are, are sitting in seats and they're listening and, and you pause for a second and then ask, excuse me, but this is my classroom. Who... Who are you and who told you to come in here and start teaching this class? This, isn't, this is not your area. Uh, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is my responsibility. If a teacher didn't ask that question, then they'd be neglecting their responsibility, right? I mean, it's, it's his responsibility. It's her responsibility to teach that class. They just let anybody from the... It's not just a free-for-all, right? Not anyone can just come in from the community and jump to the front of a classroom and command everybody's... You know, it's, so it's perfectly... They should ask, who told you to do this? By what authority are you standing up and doing this? And so the chief priests and elders in verse 23 are doing something perfectly reasonable. They're trying to take back control of the class. All the people are coming to Jesus. All the people are listening to Jesus. He's speaking with authority, and they're trying to take back control. Now, here's Jesus' response, and I, it's very simple. He says in verse 24 and 25, I'm going to ask you one thing, and if you tell me the answer, then I'll answer your question. I'll ask you a question. You give me a reply. I'll answer your question. That sounds fair to me. It sounds reasonable. Here's the question. The baptism of John... You know, John the Baptist, who came and he went to the Jordan, he's baptizing thousands and thousands of people, huge followings. The baptism of John, John the Baptist, where was it from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? 
In other words, was it from God? Was John doing God's will? Was, God, was the message he was preaching from God? Was his baptism a baptism of repentance to, to, to God? Was it real? Was it true? Or was John just a false teacher and make, he made this message up on his own? The baptism was just a thing that he invented, I don't know, for the sake of his own popularity. Which one was it? And he asked these guys. Now, if the chief priests and elders are really the shepherds of Israel... And if it's their job to tell the people of Israel who to listen to and who not to listen to, then at some point they've got to stand up and give an answer concerning John. That's what Jesus is saying here, right? If, if John the Baptist, this well-known preacher who baptized thousands of people, since this is your classroom, since Israel is your, you know, your students, Here's this guy, and everybody knows who he is. He baptized thousands of people. What's your verdict on John? I mean, he's not doing it anymore. He's dead. His ministry's over. If you're qualified to judge whether or not someone's ministry is true or false, what's your reading on, on John? What's your take? In other words, he's telling him to pick a side. False teacher or from heaven. Well, they don't want to answer that question because... If they say that John was a prophet from heaven, then Jesus has got him because they didn't, they didn't get baptized by John. They didn't believe in John's baptism. Furthermore, John had said that Jesus was the Messiah. They certainly had not embraced that. But if they say Jesus was a false teacher, which is what they believed, then they're going to make everybody upset with them. And people are going to throw a fit. They might lose some of their positions. So they answer in verse 27... We don't know. We don't know. And Jesus is like, if, if you're not going to make a call on John, then you're not qualified to question me and make a call on me. If you're not going to make a call, if you can't just, you, if this is your responsibility, then it's your responsibility. But you can't just shirk your responsibility when it benefits you and then take it up when it's to your cause. If it's your job to preside over the teaching of Israel, then make the call on John. But if you're not going to do it with John, then I'm not going to answer your question concerning me. So we, we don't know. And you, you run into people like this from time to time. People who have all of the information, they, you know, John's ministry was over. He wasn't still doing it. Like, it was, it was, it was done and finished. They had all the information. They, they knew everything that there was to, to know about making a decision, but they won't make a decision. They won't come to a verdict. They won't come to a conclusion because doing so exposes them. It exposes them to trouble, to confrontation, to questions, or it exposes them to the responsibility of how they're going to respond to it. And if you can just sit on the fence and offer maybe some questions or some judgments, some analysis some of your concerns about what someone is saying, then maybe the situation will just take care of itself. Maybe the whole issue of John the Baptist will go away. And that's what they did, right? They just waited. They didn't support John, but they didn't outright you know, stand against him. And eventually, King Herod comes and takes John's head, and the problem of John the Baptist goes away, right? And okay, we avoided, we avoided making a call on that one. And they're trying to do the same thing with Jesus. They won't support Jesus. They won't fall in line. 
But they're very careful in how they stand up against Jesus. They're, they're trying to entrap him. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to get Jesus to slip up himself because, you know, that way the problem takes care of itself. Well, eventually they're going to have to get their hands dirty, and they do. But even at the end, what do you see but them trying to get Pilate to take care of the problem of Jesus for them? They don't want to take a stand. They're wishy-washy men. They're like snakes who just kind of lay and wait in the grass. Men without conviction, men without spine, men holding on to power by shirking the responsibilities that comes with power. Well, Jesus has them off balance now. They just told the whole crowd in Jerusalem that they don't know what to make of John. And so he tells them a story in verse 28. So he says, what do you think? What do you think? A man had two sons. He comes to the first son and said, Son, go work in my vineyard. He answered and said, I won't. But afterward he regretted it and he went. He comes to the second son and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I'll go. You know, sure, Dad, I'll go. But he never ends up going. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now, that's a pretty, pretty simple story. Neither son does very well. Okay, one defies his dad and then regrets it and does the right thing. The other says, hey, sure, I'll go do it, and then never ends up. You know, neither son is perfect here. Neither son does great. But which one obeyed? Well, they answer in verse 31, the first. Obviously, that's the right answer. The first, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. You just pause. Yeah, someone went, I don't know who did it, but that's the right response. Um, that would be a shocking thing to have said about you in front of everybody, that people who were known thieves and prostitutes were going to heaven and you weren't going to get there. Like, that would be a big... Be very offensive. And then he says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Tax collectors and harlots believed him, but when you saw it, you didn't relent and believe him. You didn't change your mind. You didn't do the right thing. I think that Jesus has got them here. If they're going to avoid a major confrontation, if they're going to hope to discredit Jesus, then he is moving directly at them now. You notice they never asked Jesus in verse 23 if they were going to go to heaven when they died. Their question was not about who goes to heaven. Their question was simply about where does your authority come from? And now, in verse 31, Jesus has, in the middle of Jerusalem, the week of his crucifixion, in front of all the crowds, said very publicly that tax collectors and prostitutes are going to go to heaven, and they won't because... They didn't believe John in the beginning, and even after seeing everything they've seen, they still don't believe John now, but the Lord's not done. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in all three Gospels, this second story comes immediately after. This would be offensive enough. This would be pretty confrontational. But the second story comes on its heels, and in verse 33, Jesus says there was a certain landowner. Now, the first thing we see in the second story is ownership. Ownership. A landowner. And this landowner represents God. It says he owns everything. He owns the world. He owns our lives. God is the owner of everything. The Bible says the Lord is the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. The Bible says the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. 
Jesus says this landowner planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. So the second thing we see is investment. Planting vineyards is expensive. Never done it before, but I would imagine it's expensive. The landowner has not only planted a vineyard, but he's also made it a pretty self-sufficient operation. There's a wine press in it. You can grow the grapes and make the wine right in it. He's also secured it as, at his own expense. He's put a guard or a hedge around the whole property. Um, he's put a tower for its provision and its protection. Everything is ready. And this is a picture of what God had done with Israel. He'd given them a land to dwell in. It was a good and a prosperous land. It was a profitable land. He had protected them. He had put a hedge around them. He had sustained them. Even during their rebellions, this is what God had done. And Jerusalem, where Jesus is speaking, was their crowned city, the city of God. Verse 33, Jesus says he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So, there is a responsibility that's been delegated. Grow the grapes, make the wine, share in the reward with the landowner. God had invested deeply into Israel. They were supposed to remain faithful to him. But part of remaining faithful was enjoying all the blessings that he'd entrusted them with. His provision, his reward. And the responsibility had been delegated to them to render the fruits appropriate with God's kingdom. To be the people that God had called them to be. The responsibility had been delegated. Verse 34, Jesus says, When vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. So there's the hope of a return on the investment. A return on the investment. Nobody invests in something without a hope of a return. The vine dressers who are leasing from the landowner have lived easily off his investment. They're certainly going to share in his profit, but the landowner expects to receive the portion that he is due for beginning and investing in the whole enterprise. He's seeking a return on his investment. Verse 35 then shares the shocking news, and the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Now, what we are meant to see here is the supernatural restraint of the landowner in this scenario. And I, I use that word supernatural with purpose. His first delegation is assaulted and beaten and killed. Any self-respecting businessman at this point in time is not sending a second delegation. Any self-respecting man is gathering some form of power and is going to exert some type of justice on the people who have done this to his representatives. There's going to be, if we, in ancient terms, there's going to be some armed men of the house raised to go and deal with this scenario. This kind of behavior is not going to be tolerated. It's not going to be suffered. And what we're meant to see in the story then is a supernatural level of restraint, an inhuman type of restraint here, the kind that none of us would expect or anticipate, the kind that none of us would even say is plausible in this scenario. But when the landowner sends more servants in an attempt to make peace and collect what is his, the vine dressers treat them the same way. And so it has been with God. Remember, Jesus is revealing to us in the Gospels who God is. And God, in his dealings with Israel, has shown an unbelievable level of restraint. I don't know if you can relate to that. 
I'm not sure that you can be a Christian and not come face to face with the amount of restraint that God has shown and demonstrated to you in your life. I think it's just part and parcel for the whole thing of what we believe. We have a God. We have not been honorable towards Him. Um, We've disobeyed Him. We've made our lives into something to serve ourselves rather than our Creator who's made us in His image. And there's not been a lightning bolt from heaven to destroy me. There's not been justice exerted upon me in some everlasting consequential way. God has been very patient and He's shown a tremendous amount of restraint with me. So too God had been very patient with Israel. He had sent them prophets to speak in His name. They had stoned them, killed them, run them out of town. He had sent them more prophets and they had done more of the same. Finally, He had sent them John the Baptist. And the chief priest and the elders had rejected John and now, even on the other side of John's death, even when they knew John wasn't going to issue some kind of rebellion against the Romans, John's long dead, they still won't acknowledge him for just preaching the kingdom of God and righteousness. All of this culminates in what is surely the most shocking part of the story that Jesus is telling. In verse 37 we read, Last of all he sent his son to them saying, They will respect my son. Now in the parable we're not meant to see God as some naive landowner who can't anticipate what's coming, but rather we're meant to see that God, from His perspective, has taken every possible step to make peace with those who have rejected Him at this point. He has not only refused to take retribution on Israel in times past, but now He is prepared to send His only Son that they might hear Him and be saved from the judgment that would otherwise come because of how they've lived. It says, But when the vine dressers saw the Son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? This, of course, is a picture of what will happen to Jesus. By the way, this is just days away. The whole thing that we're reading takes place after the triumphal entry. It's the week of Jesus' crucifixion. This is not long away. The plots and the conspiring against Jesus are already underway. They're already taking place. And Jesus says they take the son and they throw him out of the city, which is what they did with Jesus. They marched him out of Jerusalem and they killed him outside of the city, which is what they did with Jesus. Because they didn't want to surrender power. They didn't want to submit to the authority of God's Son. They didn't want to recognize the authority of God's Son. And in a way, it's very similar to what we're reading in this story, where these these leases, if you will, these people who are leasing this land, see in this Son an opportunity to to finally secure their power, to to finally assume their power and authority, to, to, to put away, to deal with any suggestion that they owe something beyond what they're already prepared to give to God. Now, this group of men whom Jesus is speaking to, uh, they didn't want to answer the first question back in verse 25. There, he asked them uh, whether... Um, 
John was a prophet from heaven or a man with a false message, but now he poses a question to them at this point that is so obvious they have to answer. I mean, if you won't answer this one, you look like a fraud in front of everybody because the, surely the whole crowd listening to Jesus knows the answer to this question when he says, what will happen to those vine dressers who've behaved this way? So they have to answer, and they do in verse 41. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Now, to summarize what follows after this, in verse 42, Jesus quotes the Old Testament. He makes the point that God knew he would be rejected by Israel. In verse 43, Jesus says that God will take the kingdom from them and give it to another people. Your translations may say nation. The word nation and people were synonymous here. The people that God's giving the kingdom to are us, Gentile people. We don't have to go through Israel to come to God. We can go to God directly. In verse 44, he tells them that whether they're offended by him or whether they ignore Jesus completely, they'll face the same judgment. Because they've not believed him, they're going to be broken or ground to powder. These metaphors of destruction are meant to speak of eternal hell instead of heaven. Then in verse 45 and 46, they realize he's talking about him, about them. They want to kill him, but they can't because of all the people that are following. So very low integrity, very, very little spine, politics and maneuvering, not truthful teaching. They are like the wicked vine dressers in the story who should have been eager to give God what he's due, but they're trying to hoard and hold power to themselves, even at the expense of God's servants, John the Baptist, the prophets, God's son, Jesus. All right, so we get to the end. What do you do with something like this? That's the question, right? Well, let me try to help this morning. First, we're meant to see something of Jesus' authority here. The priest and the elders would not answer concerning John. They wouldn't give Jesus an answer, but Jesus has answered clearly. John has come from heaven. John declared that Jesus was the Messiah of God's kingdom. Jesus came from heaven. He has preached the very word of God. He is God's son, here pictured as this, this son of a landowner. He is the chief cornerstone of all of God's plan throughout creation. Jesus is the chief building block of all that God has planned since the beginning of creation. But he has been rejected by men. Jesus possesses all authority, the authority of the one true holy God because he is God in the flesh. And you're not permitted to argue with Jesus. You're not permitted to revise Jesus. You're not permitted to add to his teachings. You're not permitted to add stipulations to any of his commands or to set aside things that are uncomfortable because the authority of Jesus comes from heaven. You may be offended by him. Verse 44 speaks to that. Like someone who trips over a stone. Some people are tripped up over the words of Jesus. That could be one way you respond to him. Or you can choose to ignore him, choose to ignore Jesus. 
But whether you trip up over Jesus' words so that you reject him as the Messiah, you will be broken. Or whether you ignore him, he will fall on you in judgment and you'll be crushed by him. At some point, the landowner will require everyone to give an account of what they have done with his son. At some point. Now, he's very patient in doing this. But at some point, you will be required to give an account for what you have done with Jesus. There is no escaping that because Jesus has come from God. So you can be offended and trip up on what he says and try to adjust it and kind of cater your life around a kind of Christian life. Or you can, you know, totally reject him. You can stand off to the side and say, well, I don't know. We just can't know and ignore him. It makes no difference. One way or another. The chief cornerstone, the stone that's been rejected by the builders of Israel. Jesus himself will hold you to account. Every person is going to be held accountable to what they have done with Jesus. Which brings us to the second point of application. God is owed obedience to his message. In the first story, Jesus spoke of those two sons, the one who wouldn't obey and then did, the one who would obey and then didn't. The story hangs on the fundamental principle that God is owed obedience. He's like a father who is owed obedience. Last week at the, at the story of the prodigal son that we were looking at, you know, we came to understand, I hope, that God wants us to think of him as a father. A father, here in this story, God is also like a father of two sons. Um, God says this of himself. This is from the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. He says, a son honors his father, a servant honors his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? Where is it? If I'm a master, where's my reverence? And now Jesus has compared God to the father of these two sons. And when Jesus confronts the priests and the elders, he says they are like the second son who's not obeyed. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are like the first son who at first lived in rejection of what their father had said, but then changed. He tells them, Surely I say to you, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. How have they not obeyed? How have the chief priests and the elders not obeyed God? Did they, did they, were they liars? Did they, did they tell lies a lot? Were they adulterers? Did they sleep with lots of partners? Um, were they cruel people? I mean, what is the disobedience here? Well, Jesus tells them what the disobedience is. John came in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. That's the disobedience. You didn't believe. You didn't accept the message. The tax collectors and the harlots, the people who were the cheats and the adulterers and the sinners, they believed him. And when you saw it, when you saw the change of the righteousness of God in these people's lives, even then you didn't relent and believe. So what is their chief act of disobedience? They didn't believe. They refuse to accept it. See, obeying God is not primarily about rule keeping. Obeying God is primarily about the conversion, the change that takes place inside of a person who truly believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That belief changes a person. Believing in Jesus Christ changes a person. This is why belief 
and the word repentance always go hand in hand. Believing Jesus requires a repenting of the heart. We'll get to that word in a second. That word here, in verse 32, it says, you did not relent and believe. The word relent is the same as the word repent. Many translations just put repent and believe. What does repentance mean but change? It means change. I don't even like using the word repent because what in the word does that mean? It means change. This is why the call to repent, the call to change is so repetitive in the New Testament. I'll give you a few examples. Jesus preaching in Matthew 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He doesn't say believe. He's preaching the message. Either they'll believe it or not, but the message is change. Change. Change your life. Matthew eleven twenty, he began to rebuke the cities and whom most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They did not change. There was no change. Luke 13, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you don't change, you are all going to die. It's Jesus preaching. This is his message. This was John's message. Remember John the Baptist showing up. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His disciples continue with the preaching of this message. Just these three examples are good enough for us this morning. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit of God comes upon the people. Thousands of people are saved from his preaching. And what's Peter's message? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Change. Change. The next chapter in Acts has... Peter and John teaching in the temple of God, and here's their message, repent and be converted. Change that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In Acts 8, he runs across Simon the magician. That's an interesting story that we won't go into today. Repent of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. Change. In order for a person to be saved, there must be a fundamental change of the heart. In order for a person to be saved, there must be a fundamental change in that person's life that takes place when a person believes that Jesus is the Son of God with all the authority of heaven, who must be obeyed, who must be honored. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a very well-known theological dissertation. Here's how it describes repentance. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. That's what I'm doing this morning. I'm attempting to do it anyway. I'm not merely preaching faith in Christ. I'm preaching that you should repent. Why am I doing that? Because as I've already shown you from many passages of the Bible, this is how Jesus preached. This is how his disciples preached. There must be change. So we preach faith in Christ and we preach repentance. We preach a change of the heart. Have you had a change of the heart upon believing in Jesus? We're not talking about an intellectual acknowledgement of some historical fact. We're talking about a real fundamental change. If not, you may not be saved. 
the confession goes on. By repentance, a sinner, I I love this part, a sinner who is out of sight and sense, not only of the danger, we we understand the danger of being a sinner, the eternal danger of being a sinner, but by repentance, a sinner who's not only out of touch with the danger, but also of the filthiness and the odiousness, the stink of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension, the understanding of his mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin, as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. Now that's what the priests and the elders are missing. That's what the tax collectors and the prostitutes had found. At one point in their lives, they had no concept of the danger they were in. Sure, they knew that they weren't going to win any morality contest. They knew that people didn't think they were good people, but they had no sense of the destruction that their sin would bring upon them in the form of God's eternal fiery judgment. No concept of it. Might as well have been Greek mythology. They didn't feel it. But upon, upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ, they see it for what it is. At one point, they had no sense of the filthiness of their sin. They had no sense of the evil of it. They had no no disdain for it. But upon the apprehension of God's mercy, when the sinner apprehends, when the sinner comes into possession of an understanding of how a merciful and loving God has sent His only Son to die on a cross for them, when a sinner comes to see that and to truly believe it, like tax collectors and harlots did, And he becomes penitent and he grieves for his sin. He hates his sin. It's not merely an acknowledgement that I shouldn't be doing these things. It is a disdain for sin. And he wants to be done with all of it. He wants to turn from all of it and to turn to God. He wants to walk with God. He wants to keep his commands. His faith in Christ requires an internal change. His faith in Christ gives life to a new understanding of his sin. He hates it. He turns from it. He purposes in his heart to never go back to that kind of living again. That's repentance. That's what Jesus preached. That's the joy of salvation too, by the way. The fact that you can go from being a tax collector or a prostitute or whatever it is that you are to being a different person, a changed person. That's the joy. There is no joy in Jesus' coming apart from that. There is no joy in God sending a a son to die if there be no change in us, if, if if it means nothing to us. There are people, I guess, who have no patience for a message like this because they don't want to think about their sin and they either don't believe or don't want to change. I suppose I understand that. But when a person trusts Jesus, there is an internal change that takes place, apart from which there is no assurance of salvation. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, that Jesus will return with angels in flaming fire 
taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. These, he says, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes. Do you have any concept of the danger that you're in because of your sin this morning? It is not a small thing to the landowner that his son has been killed. If so, then salvation is found in the apprehension of God's mercy in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that whoever believes, that's the obedience required, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's mercy to all of us. Filthy, unholy, unbelieving sinners. You're no worse of a sinner than I am. The question is whether or not there has been this change brought on by God in your life. And I call on you now today to repent, to have a change of heart, to believe Jesus and his message, to join me in hating your own sinfulness, to purpose in your heart with all of your power that you will endeavor to walk with God from this day forward. God will help you. God will love you. God will bless you. But unlike the chief priests and the elders, you must believe and you must repent. Let's pray together. Father, I'm well aware that there's nothing in the message that we haven't heard before. Perhaps there's some things that we need to be reminded of. Of all the fundamental things in life that we might get wrong. Going into debt when we shouldn't. Making commitments we shouldn't. Breaking commitments we shouldn't. There is nothing in life more dangerous to us. Than refusing to believe and follow your son Jesus. There is nothing about our lives more shameful, more humiliating than treating our sin as if it's no big deal, as if it didn't require the sacrifice of your son on a cross. Father, I ask that if there's people here today who do not know you or who've heard this message a thousand times but have not experienced a change, that you will grip their hearts that they will be apprehended by the understanding of your mercy that you've shown to them in Christ, that their sin will stink to them. They'll be eager to be free of it and to follow you. I pray for the power for this change, which I know comes from you. Help us to be men and women of spine and of character who acknowledge the authority of Jesus from heaven as it is and who determine to live our lives the way that we should. Bless our offerings that we give now. Put them to the purpose of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.